Hello, everybody, and welcome to Faster Masters Rowing Radio, where having a rowing coach only makes you better. Following a program gives you a true pathway to becoming a confident rower who's respected by your peers. You can become the athlete you want to row with. I'm Rebecca Caro, and I'm joined by Marlene Royal. Hello, Rebecca, and hello to our Faster Masters Rowing Radio audience. Yeah, we were just having a bit of a whinge about the weather. Your 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 spring was a false dawn. We could hardly call it spring. It's been extremely cold, and we had two centimeters of snow yesterday. But it's not even spring. But your but ice is are, melted. The ice is melted, and the daffodils are popping up. So, like, go figure, right? <laughs> This is global warming, right? (laughs) I have crazy daffodils here and they come out in autumn. They're not supposed to, but for some reason they think, I've had enough rest, I'll I'll flower now. It's time to go. It's time to go. (laughs) Go crazy. So this week, the podcast is sponsored by the Racing Starts Challenge. This is your three-day intensive learning to absolutely nail a racing start sequence. It will guarantee to perfect your racing starts for this season. It's led by three expert Olympians, Mary Whipple, Adam Creek, and Cam Kisoglus. And you can find out more by signing up to our newsletter, which is fastermastersrowing.com forward slash newsletter, or searching on eventbrite.com for the Racing Starts Challenge. And I think I can do a little screen share. Here we go. You can have a little look at it. There we go. The tickets are completely free. And the way it's structured is we're going to have a one-hour webinar each day on three consecutive days with each of our experts. So it starts on Tuesday, the 24th of May, sorry, Monday, the 23rd of May through to Thursday, the 25th. So it's local time. That was a a New Zealand time I gave you. And each one of our experts will then do a paid after party, which is our VIP ticket, which is uh, a charge. If you're going to come and join us, it'll be 35 US and you'll get a lot more detail on the opportunity to question them. But as I said, their first hour is going to be done free. It'll be live streamed in Facebook and in YouTube. And all you have to do is go to this Eventbrite page and sign up. And we already have seven people who signed up and I haven't even begun publicizing it. How about that? Cool. Well, Adam and Mary are, are terrific. Um, you know, we, we've, we've talked to them about racing starts in the past and they're just awesome. And Cam, I think, has tons of experience to share with us so i think it's going to be like a hot hot topic yeah really looking forward to that now this past week is the part in the show where marlene and i talk about the things that we're doing more generally to advocate for rowing and i am attending a strategy day this coming weekend for um masters in new zealand um which is being run by the legion of rowers uh, so I hope the, that'll be fun. What have you been up to? Cool. Well, sort of actually local organization. And I, I met with one of our local rowing club board members this week um, because he's on a committee for uh, safety on our lake and, and ways that that the community can organize things on the lake 
for all of the people who share the lake. So that means, you know, we do have some motor boaters, but we also have a lot of a lot of swimmers, kayakers, paddle boarders, rowers. Um, so so I think there's a nice community effort developing just to make people aware of how and, and sailing, how different people use the lake. And for example, when it's a great sailing day, it's usually a day when we're not rowing and vice yeah, versa. <laughs> so 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 that was kind of an, an interesting conversation to see that you know i mean i really like the idea that that you know the long distance swimmers want to talk to the rowers and you know people find out like how can we make it better for everyone in terms of traffic pattern and places that should be no wake zones and things like that so so that i was working on that this week one of as one of my things wow that's a lot of work now take a look at this absolutely glorious photograph that was shared with me by Fabio della Mora. And this is Trieste in Italy. And what a glorious view out to see. So for those people, if you're in looking at Trieste this way, first on the right there on the waterfront, there is a sculpture of James Joyce, which you can't see. However, if you imagine where, where this boathouse is, if you looked, if you think of what's to the right if you go to the right and follow the shoreline you're going to come to venice and if you go to the left and you follow the shoreline you're going to go up into the corner of the adriatic and you're going to come cross the border to slovenia about 10 minutes from here and go to Koper and then isola where there are also some other rowing clubs there well isn't that gorgeous yep. so and this is the obviously... very top 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 of the adriatic yeah and they can row on Behind the breakwater, I'm guessing, as well as on the ocean. Now, we have something very exciting to reveal to everybody exclusively and a world first. Uh, we have designed a rowing kit collection courtesy of JL Rowing. And I'm just going to show you um, some of these glorious, glorious uh gear that they have uh, designed for us so it's a custom store and for people who are um, listening rather than watching I'll tell the website address to you in a minute but here is the gear so starting with a uni suit at the top for men and women then we have a uni tank a regular short sleeve shirt then we have a mesh tank again for men and women then we have trow, which are known as shorts in the rest of the world, and leggings, which are called tights, um, a mid-weight mid mid jacket, and turtle shell gilets, and a hat, all in gorgeously designed colours, uh, which fit with our, our kind of styling for, for the brand for Faster Masters Rowing. And... We are going to be sending round the links to buy from this store on Friday, 30th of April. So make sure that you're signed up and in our newsletter, uh, because that's where you will get the hyperlinks to uh, be able to go shopping. And the store is only going to be open for two weeks. So through to the 12th of May, and then it closes and that's it. Um, and for those who are listening, the website address is jlrowing.com forward slash collections forward slash faster hyphen masters. 
So there you go. So Rebecca, um, once the, the store closes, is that when they produce all of the orders? Yep. So it's a bulk purchase and they'll they'll make everything all at once. So order quick, then they make it quick. And then hopefully we'll get it all shipped out before the summer. So I'm very excited by this. It was a bit yeah. of a big step, if I'm being honest, to, to sort of decide to branch out like this. And hey, it may be a complete mistake. You might all say we don't like this stuff and we'd never buy the gear. But the thing that the thing that got us onto this is this is a conundrum that Marlene and I have been working on for a long time. So we know and you know that there are lots of faster masters all around the world. And yeah, we come together and, and you hang out with us when we're doing our podcast. But actually, if we're ever at an event, how do we know who else is out there who's part of the community? And so the idea we came up with was what if we had some branded clothing that people could wear and then you would know because you would see someone and you'd be able to say, huh, you know, I'm in that gang too. And mm -hmm. it would be a bit of a talking point. Well, and, and also, I mean, one of the reasons that we've, we've worked with JL is I think both of us have worn JL clothing for years and years. And when I was a competing athlete, um, JL was one of my sponsors. And I had so much fun designing my own unisuits, which was really cool. But, but, you know, it's just really high quality clothing. And I think, you know, that's the, the important thing is that if you buy a JL product, it's, it's usually going to last you for years and years. So, well, maybe then next year we'll design a new design and then we'll have a different, slightly different one every single year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if it's a success, um, we will open the store again later in the year for sure. Um, you know, maybe with a few more winter uh, clothing items in there. So, for now, give us your feedback. Let us know if you think we're being crazy or whether this is a wonderful <laughs> idea. Everybody loves new gear, right? So you don't call it kit? Well, they don't in the US. They might in Canada. I'm, I'm not sure. So in Canada, they might. You have to read some of the other websites and see what they call things. We'll call but, it gear. Yeah, but trow, when I started rowing, back in the 70s i'm dating myself but we called shorts trow shorts mm -hmm. were trow for sure mm -hmm. and what is it short for trousers but you don't call them trousers you call them pants no 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 well when i started when i started rowing our shorts right were called Americans. our shorts were called uh, rowing trow our shorts were called rowing trow we had trow but no, it, I think, I don't know, in the U.S., I think if it's trousers, those are connected, like, the kind of pants you wear with a suit. Unlike, like, jeans Loose or pants or something. trousers, yes, I did know that, yeah. I think, you know, they're yeah. more sort of the dressy, so, or it's just a dated <laughs> word, like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Old-fashioned. Um, you will laugh. When I send round the... Uh, email that announces the collection I decided to include all the different words for unisuit from all the different countries that I am aware of um, I don't know what it is in non-English speaking countries so you'll have a laugh when you get it you'll be able to see all these crazy different words none of which actually describes the garment <laughs> <laughs> that should be a new competition right 
could be. Yeah. Now, back to the last part of our stroke cycle. We have been doing episodes that have run through the entire cycle. And today we're going to wrap up with one that is overriding everything. And yet we possibly could have done it at the beginning, but we've chosen to do it at the end. And so today we're talking about grip and posture. Which should we do first, Marlene? Uh, we, let's talk about hand placement. Or grip. While hand placement, I'll talk about it from sculling and then Rebecca can talk about it from sweep. But, but um, one of the things important is how you establish your hands on the handle. Because if you establish your hands incorrectly, you're going to be over-rotated or under-rotated when you feather, feather and square the blade. So one of the pointers that I like to give scholars when they're out on the water and, and when we're first, when they're first learning or even sometimes experienced scholars who have a tendency when they, when they square their blade that their wrist will bend up too high, for example, so they're gonna be over-rotated, is when you establish your hands on the handle, Sit at like three quarter slide, put your put your blade square in the water, and then put your hand on the handle. So put your hand on the handle when the blade is square in the water because that is the position of work. So when you draw, I'll put my hand to the side, when you draw on the handle, you want to make sure that you're keeping the back of your hand and your wrist flat so that you're not increasing stress on your carpal tunnel or your wrist. If your wrist is bent, all your body weight and tension is going into your wrist versus being transmitted to your to your body. So establish your hand when your blade is square on the water. And what I use as a guideline is that the top row of your knuckles sits on top of the handle. And and then then you can see I'm moving, I'm I'm sort of releasing my thumb off the handle a little bit, but you can move your roll your handle in your hand quite easily if you have your hand in the same position. So you don't want the handle out in your tippy tips of your fingers. That's not very strong. But you also don't want the handle all the way in your palm because that's a it's a shorter stroke. Okay. If you if you open up that angle and keep your palm off the handle and you're working really hard on stroke length, when you put your blade in the water, this is a longer stroke than if the handle is all the way in the palm oh, of your hand. So I didn't know that. that is just a pure biomechanical thing that if you want to increase stroke length, just reposition, reposition your hands and learn how to move the handle in your hand versus moving your hand with the handle. Okay. That's, that's two different things, but um, yeah, years ago, I, I mean, this was sort of, it's kind of a simple thing really when you think about it, but I, Volker Nolte had a, a really good biomechanics overview in a Rowing Canada magazine years ago. And he was like, well, the easiest way to improve your stroke length is to change your hand position. And I'm like, well, that totally makes sense. If you're, you know, a little bit longer here in your hand, you're going to be a little bit longer in your catch angle. So, um, so there is value in doing this instead of working so hard, you know, just look at what your hand is doing. I think another thing to look at for, for scholars, there, there is what we called an open, open 
grip and a closed grip. Okay, so if I'm I'm looking in the camera here now, if I if I look at the end of my handle here, if my index finger is close to the end of the handle, and then I just let my thumb be where it wants to be, I'm capped over the end of the handle. Okay, we call that a closed grip. If you see something like this, okay, where your thumb is on the end and you're seeing a whole bunch of space between the end of your handle and where your hand is, that's kind of an open grip. And this, you're reducing, if, you, if your hand is constantly sliding down the handle, my solution to that is change your inboard and bring the end of the handle to where your hand wants to be. So that, that's my occupational therapy background kicking in there. Because if your hand continually slides down the handle, that's probably a signal that that's where your hand wants to be for you to be in the strongest position to apply your body weight when you start to draw the handle. If your handle is, is if you're always off the end of the handle, you're not gaining the leverage of that inboard anyway. So your leverage point is starting where your index finger is on the handle. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, if you take your handle and you just, if if you want to feel where your handle should be, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up and see if I can get this in the camera. If you stand up with your arm down at your side and you take a handle and you just hold it like a suitcase in your hand and then just let your thumb rest over the end. That's essentially how you want to hold your handle. And then and then you bring it and you put it back up this way, like that. So that that will give you a sense if you take if you take a handle or a grip, just hold it like a suitcase, put your thumb on the end, let it rest in your fingers where it wants to be naturally, and then imagine that's how you put your hands on the handle. That's great. Um I when I'm teaching people for the beginning sculling class who've never rode before I always have them start with a flat palm on top of the handle so that they position those knuckles exactly as you mm -hmm. describe it they get the knuckle position first yes and then just let your fingers wrap around yeah so actually you don't and and I I think it opens up the world that in in all honestly you don't have to really hold the handles Okay, because think about it. When the blade is in the water, the water is the, the blade has buoyancy. The water is holding the, the oar for you. You have to guide the handle and guide the the keeping the handle pretty level. However, the water is supporting the blade. When you take your, your blade out of the water and you feather it, just let it go flat in the oarlock. The oarlock is now supporting your oar. So again, you don't you don't have to overwork things on the handle. Um, you do have to guide the handle and you do have to have, you know, good control over your feathering and squaring skill. But the boat in the, the water does a lot for you in terms of actually holding, holding the oar. You have to make the transitions. You do. And people sometimes ask me how tightly should I hold the handle? And of course, tightness is very subjective and I learned this from a fellow coach who said if you are picking up a puppy or a kitten or a small bird 
you know that if you hold it too loose, it'll struggle. But if you have a gently firm grip around its body, it relaxes and just sits in the comfort of the enclosure that you've made. And of course, if you hold it too tight, then, you know, as I I made the mistake once of sending a follow-up email saying, we don't want any dead kittens. And someone got oh, very offended by the fact like, <laughs> Well, you know, it is it is interesting um, when you when you when you think about it. I mean, there are there are some coaches who coach a full grip over the handle and that may be their stylistic preference. I I don't do that simply because if we are striving for stroke length, having the handle in the palm of your hand is shorter than than opening up that angle. And so that that's just a clear biomechanical reason right there more than a stylistic reason. But um, but something I'll throw out to our audience if we if we get any um, feedback about this, how much pressure to put on the handle? Now, as we said, I don't have the perfect answer for this because I think it is somewhat subjective. Um, obviously, if you're rowing at full pressure, if you have more pressure on your footboard, you're going to have more pressure on your handle. Um, in the strength and 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 in rowing, we talk about a pretty light light. Um, handling of the oar so that we can feel the oar and feel the water. Now, one of the things that sort of intrigues me, and I haven't experimented with this, but in strength training, the way that you increase your power is by squeezing the bar huh. and your, your power goes up. And if anybody um, follows kettlebell literature, particularly that of Pavel Tsatsulin, who's one of the gurus of kettlebell training um, and who is sort of a Spetsnaz type of instructor. Um, that is one of the biggest ways, um, and also Stuart McGill talks about this, biggest ways to increase your power is to squeeze harder. So it's just interesting. I've never played with this. I, I put this out to our audience. It's not a way that we typically think about this in rowing, but it's, it's a little bit intriguing, isn't it? It certainly is. And I wouldn't want to do it in some respects in rowing, partly because in strength training, you're not going to be two, doing 220 repetitions, you know, at full power down a race course for 2000 meters. But that's an interesting thing. And I wonder what the incremental gain is, because I mean, in weightlifting, you know, tiny increments matter in rowing, tiny increments matter. So there's real alignment there. I know. And it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, in rowing, we have alternate, you know, we, we can alternate that pressure. And I, I think talking about our how you hold the oar you know that you've you've got pressure on the drive but on the recovery you have the ability to to let those muscles rest and release some tension so you could alternate that but um that is something i was reading about recently and i was kind of a little bit intrigued about like on the erg if you squeeze the handle harder are you going to go faster i mean i i've just it's just something to play around with. I'm not saying it's good or good or bad, but it is it is a, you know, in kettlebell training, that is definitely um, something that they work on. So I think that's quite interesting. Very interesting. Now let's move on to the sweep grip. So in sweep, your two hands have two different jobs, depending on which side of the boat you're rowing on. But the way you hold the handle is exactly the same as Marlene already described. 
I like the idea of sitting with the blade squared and buried in the water and then placing your hands over the handle flat and just wrap your hands around. Let the thumbs go underneath. If you have people with extremely small hands or you're teaching kids, sometimes the handle is too large for your thumbs to go underneath. And But you, you should try to have your thumbs underneath the handle, partly because in sweep rowing, that provides a tiny little bit of vertical pressure, which helps to keep the blade buried under the water. So you need to have that level of control. Obviously, only one hand does the squaring and the feathering. And that's your inside hand, which will be your left hand if you're rowing on bow side, your right hand if you're on stroke side, um, port starboard, sorry, starboard port. And in the recovery, you want to keep your outside hand, this is my outside hand here, you want to keep your, outs your outside hand flat and your inside hand is going to cock down to feather the blade and then it's going to rotate back to a flat wrist as you square and you come up to the catch so that it is deliberate and quite consciously different from the sculling stroke. You should be able to turn the oar with just the one hand and the other hand is holding on sufficiently loosely that the oar rotates inside your grip. Typically, people will tend to feather a little bit sometimes with both hands. But what's really important is that you don't over rotate the feathering hand when you square so that you end up with this cocked wrist when the blade is square and you're about to load it when you put the oar in the water. Yes, absolutely. And it's very important in both sweep and sculling. On the drive, you have to check your hands. On the drive, you have to make sure that the back of your hand and your wrist is flat. And the reason why this is important is A, you're going to reduce your, your chance of getting very common overuse injuries in your wrist. You can get wrist tendonitis. If you're, if you're putting all your body weight on your bent wrist, that's going to put a lot of tension in your wrist when you're, when you're under pressure. But also, you know, you're, you just want to think about moving the handle with your body weight. And if your wrist is bent, all your body weight is going into your wrist and it, it, it isn't moving up the, the links of your arm to your upper body weight. So it is important. It's easy to overlook this because, you know, you get all caught up in the drive and rowing hard and you want to go and it's easy to overlook your hand position on the drive, but you want to check it just like Rebecca said, make sure that this row of your row of knuckles is on top of the handle. And that is that is your reference point. And you know, and that you you know, for sure that that's staying on top top of the handle and try to learn to move the handle inside your hand versus moving your whole hand with the handle, which I call the Harley Davidson mechanism. Yes. Because again, right, right so you could now, you can, if you're at the starting line, you can put your hand on the handle and like, you know, at the, at the start, if you're fast enough and you're sure you're going to beat the other guy in the other boat. But, um, but it is, but it is important to pay attention to this because again, every time you're cranking your wrist with pressure, you're putting a lot of stress on your carpal tunnel. So the more you can keep that wrist neutral, 
throughout the entire stroke, whether it's the release, whatever, not that everybody does it, but if you can master that and, and maintain that handhold properly, you decrease an enormous amount of stress and potential injury to your wrist. Yeah, and that is so important. And these things take a lot of practice to get right. So there are some little things that you can do to help yourself. One of the grip correction techniques that I like is to take a, a cheap elastic band or a hair elastic. And if you're one of those people who has the tendency that your hand drifts down and you have that open grip Marlene demonstrated earlier, is to put a rubber band on the handle. And so it sits against the outer edge of your hand by your little finger so you can feel it. So if your hand has a tendency to drift, and you feel yourself pushing against the band, you can then reposition your hand. And the same works for a sweep grip. If your inside hand turns to drift either up or down, I mean, people's hands drift. I think the inside hand has a tendency to drift in sweep a bit more than the outside hand. And, you know, classically they say, put your hands shoulder width apart. Well, I think that's rubbish because I've seen rowers whose shoulders are much wider than the width of a handle. So, a comfortable width at a minimum i would say stick your thumbs out and when your thumbs touch at 90 degrees that's the minimum distance apart your hands should be and for me that's a little bit too close i want them just a little bit more but you will work out what feels comfortable if your hands are too close together you can't get good pressure mm -hmm. you get a better pressure with a slightly wider grip um, and that's partly because the way the grip works in sweep when you only have one or is that the leverage moves from your outside hand to your inside hand as you go around the arc in the power phase so at the catch your inside hand is very uh, ineffective because it's too close to the fulcrum and your outside hand um, actually has a much more control your outside hand always has the better control but as you come past perpendicular square off to the orlop and you come through to the very last bit of the legs and arm draw of the sweep stroke your inside hand has an enormous amount of additional pressure that you can just add to the stroke just by giving a really good draw with your inside hand because your outside hand has moved to an oblique angle with your elbow and your forearm so it's quite hard to actually grip and get good purchase on the water with your outside hand so it kind of goes from outside to inside mm -hmm. as you go through the power phase. Rebecca, I think an, an important little tip too for positioning your outside hand on the, the sweep or is when you're at approaching the entry, be sure that you, you're not pushing the handle out so that it's so that you're in that your fingers are coming off the outside handle that that happens sometimes you know when somebody they, their inside hand is still pushing the handle ar around as you're approaching the entry and they're trying to reach too far and they push the outside handle out in the tippy tips of their fingers um yeah. so i you know i i always like to watch and make make sure that you've got those fingers on the handle because you're going to need to use them as soon as the blades in the water, particularly the outside hand. So, you Correct. know, if somebody's like, you know, they're in, they're like this, the hand, you know, they're yeah. barely holding onto it. It's going to be really hard to apply that pressure to get and, going. 
Yeah. And more importantly, they will have a slow and a late catch because the outside hand controls the weight of the handle. Because it's further away from the fulcrum, a small movement in your outside hand has a much greater impact on what's happening on the spoon. And you will guarantee that that person has a really slow catch if they're placing the oar with their inside hand. So don't do it, kids. Yeah, yeah. Keep it in your book. Just keep be aware that it's in your fingers and that you're not pushing it into those fingertips. You don't have very much control when, when your handle is all the way out into your tippy tips. A drill for that is to do wide grip. Mm -hmm. So you can row with your inside hand down the loom and your outside hand then is forced to do a lot more of the height control. You can do a progression of that, which is to do uh, your inside hand just laying flat on the top of the oar. So rowing square blades, you're not squaring and feathering. And your inside hand is at the wide grip position and it's just flat on top. It's not actually holding. And a further progression, if you want it, is you can hold your backstay with your inside hand. So yeah. you can actually do a full stroke with just the outside hand controlling everything. And the inside hand is it's almost like a, you're, you're, you're taking a balance. And that helps both with understanding what the outside hand's doing and it also helps you to rotate around the arc because with your inside hand reaching out onto the rigger it really draws your torso around and that makes a significant difference to people who haven't understood fully the amount of rotation that you need to do it's it's rotating in your shoulders really not in your hips you still have this sculling leg drive but the hips uh, the shoulders mm -hmm. are the things that need to turn around the arc of the pin yes and for scholars one drill that they can practice is what I call one finger rowing, middle finger rowing. So you put the put the blade in the water and then draw through the water with just your middle finger, just your hmm. middle finger. Then when you get to the release, tap down, put all your fingers on, go through your recovery, place the blade in the water again, the water's gonna hold the blade, draw through with just the middle finger and you're actually going to feel exactly the position that your your hand needs to be on, then just put all your fingers on because you can't over manipulate it if you're only rowing with just your middle finger. That's so cool. I heard an announcer at the Henley Regatta talking about being strong enough to hold back the devil and gentle enough to bend the angel's wings. Would that apply <laughs> to grip? Good. That's a beautiful description. Yes, I like that. Let's move on to posture. So posture is how you sit in the boat. And the thing about how you sit is that there are sort of three basic styles and it's easier to explain the extremes than to explain the midpoint, which is what we want. So the extremes range from extremely poised upwards, almost like a ballet dancer or a gymnast with an arched back. Um, and they're so, so they're, sternum is so raised that everything is really really elevated and extended and kind of tight in its extension the opposite is the couch potato where you're slumped your pelvis has tilted backwards and there's a curvature to the back of your spine and your shoulders are down and your chin is sometimes down and towards your chest and where we want you to sit is somewhere between the two you need to have lift off the seat. So you need to be sitting tall, but not rigidly tall. 
And you definitely don't want to slump because that's going to affect how you handle the oars, which is a topic for another day. Yes, I, I think posture, everybody goes, oh, yes, 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 yes. And then they get in the boat and they totally don't pay attention to it. Um, I think big topic with posture. You need to work on your posture all the time, not just think about it as something that you have to address when you're in the boat. If you are constantly slumping in your car, okay, my advice in your car, put the back of your seat up, adjust, put your head on the headrest so that, so this way your ears are aligned over your hips. Adjust your rear view mirror so that you can see out the rear view mirror with your head touching your headrest. That is essentially a, a neutral position. And if your spine is in neutral, it's much more resilient to injury because your, your, your vertebrae are stacked on each other. You're not using musculature to hold yourself in place. Like the first example that Rebecca talked about, somebody who's really stiff and rigid, they're using a lot of energy of their muscles to hold them in that position. That takes too much energy. We don't want to be in that extreme. Um, if you are not sure what a neutral spine feels like, lay down on the floor. That's a neutral mm -hmm. spine. When you're lying down on the floor, that's a neutral spine. Or if you, you sit up, um, on an erg, you know, we've talked about this before, put your hands behind your head and just feel what that feels like. That's, that's a neutral spine or, or tuck your hands, sit, if you're sitting at your desk right now, tuck your hands behind the small of your back. That's a neutral spine. So compare that position to how, if you get in the boat and just go uh, like that, like the sack of potatoes we were talking about, that's going to put a lot of stress on your spine during the drive. When you drive, we don't want the pressure going through the vertebrae. We want the pressure transmitting through the hips. So that in-between position where there may be a little curvature of the spine is there, there, you know, weightlifters who lift big heavy weights or like in those strongman competitions when they, they grab the big boulder and they lift mm. a really heavy boulder up onto a shelf, they have a little bit of curvature to the spine, but it's a strong position. It is a natural position. And so there is some strength in a natural curvature, which is different from really collapsing and not controlling your spine as you drive where all the, all the power is going through your vertebrae. That's going to be really dangerous for your lower back. So that's the, you know, that, that relaxed position versus those extremes and, you know, quick test, put your hands behind your neck and just, just rock back and forth on your seat a little bit. That's essentially a, a neutral spine. But when people get in the boat and they sit down, they forget about everything. That's the issues with sitting sports. It's a sitting sport and it's real easy to get lazy on that seat. So you've got to be up over your sit bones. You have to think about keeping the low back supported. If your low back drops, that's that's when you're putting your spine in, in a dangerous position versus keeping the if the lumbar spine is intact, that then then you're you're in pretty good shape and you're connected. If you lay back too far, that that lumbar spine position starts to change, it's too far. That that's one of those indicators. It certainly is. And if you're a desk worker, Try to sit on your chair um, at your desk, sitting forwards on the seat and with both feet on the floor. 
try not to cross your legs um, if you can, because that allows you to sit with a perfect neutral spine. Um, and it is sometimes easier if your chair is just a little higher to keep both those feet on the floor, because then there isn't room under the desk to cross your legs. Right, right. Gen yeah, generally crossing your legs is not very good for your circulation. If you do cross your legs, you should cross your feet at your ankles, not not at your knee level. Oh. In terms of circulation, so like after you know after people have surgeries, they often say, "Do not cross your oh, legs." Yeah. If you need to cross your yeah. legs, you cross them at the ankles. Yeah, yeah, they have to sleep with a pillow between their knees so your mm -hmm. legs don't cross. But getting in the habit—I mean, the thing with posture is you have to make it a habit. If you think you're going to do it for the, the 75 minutes that you're in the boat and that's all you're going to do, it's not going to work. You have to you have to address it in your daily life when you're sitting at your desk, when you're sitting in your car, um, when you're eating dinner. Um, slumping on the couch is not the best thing for your rowing, but mm -hmm. you could sit on the floor. That yeah. would be, and if you need to watch television or watch something, sit on the floor. It's actually much better for you than sitting on the sofa. Well, there you go. There's a, something for us all to work on. Any last thoughts, Marlene, before we leave grip and posture behind? I think just really critical parts of the stroke cycle, critical components of connecting all the parts of the stroke cycle. You know, if the hand placement is not correct, if the posture is not correct, it's going to be very difficult to execute all of the elements that we've been talking about in the stroke cycle. So, you know, sometimes you have to go slow and work work on these components, but it it you know it pays off with good good connection in a much more efficient stroke cycle certainly does. So that wraps up our series on the stroke cycle. We will be publishing it on our website as a free course uh, and we'll let you know when it's there and it will be the series of videos that we have been recording together with you on this journey. So thank you very much for coming on the journey with us. Uh, it's been rather fun. This has been Faster Masters Rowing Radio, the show dedicated to masters athletes who want fun, fitness and confidence in their rowing. You can become a student of the sport by buying a Faster Masters Rowing program subscription today at fastermastersrowing.com forward slash join. And don't forget, make sure you're on the newsletter for the gear information and the shop URL, which will come out tomorrow, Friday. Till next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.